Hello, this is Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. I am joined today by... Kate Ornike. And, uh, yes. And uh, want to introduce yourself any more than that? Or? No, not really. That sounds great. So this is going to be a conversation. This is a conversation with Kedar. Uh, we talk we talk about economics. We talk about cities. And whereas I am a person who would describe myself as a Georgist, I find a lot of interesting uh, conclusions in the work, and I tend to find it very persuasive. Uh, you, I wouldn't call you a skeptic per se, but you certainly aren't. I would call myself a dummy. Which is a kind of skeptic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, and I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a good balance of, uh, of, of, of voices here to have someone who is more a believer and someone who's more of a... a not, dummy. Yeah, more of a dummy. Yeah. So, okay, so you were, you were talking about an article that was going on today, because we talk a lot about the fact it's 2017, the economy is it's, a mess. It's still 2017. It's 2017 right now, and will continue to be for quite a while. Yeah. The economy is a mess. Yeah. It's part of the reason why Donald Trump is in the White House. Mm-hmm. And no one really seems to have a consensus answer on how things are going to get better. Well, what, what things are wrong? Let's talk about that first. Well, I, you talk about the people who voted Trump in. Yes. They tend to feel they're, what they have been promised over decades is no longer open to them. They were promised good jobs in the city, stability, a sense of value, and a sense of a community that is that is functioning. Uh, and they did not. And now they're more and more living in depressed economies in rural areas, and communities are falling apart. The opioid epidemic is through the roof, and a lot of people are just simply not able to find work. Uh, and the and that's that's one of the big questions, and a lot of people would say that the rural urban divide is perhaps the biggest thing that has sent uh, Trump to the White House. Right, I think I think people were promised a sense of moving forward. Yeah, uh, and it's and all they've seen is a you know moving backwards. Yes, I mean you can you can look at what they point fingers at. Globalism is one of the big words you know thrown around. This was a defeat of the of the consensus uh, for the global economy because they felt it's not working for them. Uh, I'm not sure that 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 uh, thought progress is really correct. So at the local scale, I think that's uh, that's correct, right? Um, insofar as I I have a job. At a factory, I, I'm part of a union. I got a good wage. I'm getting benefits, uh, and then suddenly this job disappears, and now, you know, I'm working at Target. Well, I mean, it's correct insofar as they correlate. At, at the same time, you did have more global trade, and in time, these jobs disappeared. But you can look at a number of different things that changed in the t- same time frame. You look at more global trade. That's one thing. You look at uh, an increase in technology. That's another change that's happened in the course of this time. And for a uh, third thing, uh, you can look at uh, people, as I said, there's an interesting new article, uh, monopolies uh, and just basically competition in rural areas has, has also gone down. And these are all things that have happened over time. Are What is the cause and what is the uh, symptom? And also, uh, yeah, well, is, there a, is there a cause behind them all? I don't think it's very easy to say, hey, before NAFTA, things were great. After NAFTA, it's not so great. I think blaming NAFTA as the obvious cause is a possibly, and I would say very likely, 
just completely in error. I tend to think globalization reveals uh, underlying fundamental problems. It does not cause them. It's the old uh, Warren Buffett thing. When the tide goes down, you see who's swimming naked. I think when globalization happens, you see which economies were basically fundamentally unsound. That's that's... That tends to be what I think is true, and I, so were, so were they unsound fundamentally, or were, were they just in a very privileged position to begin with? I, I I think there's part of that too, where you know we have this post-war economy and uh, America's on top, largely because everywhere else has been destroyed. Oh, um, if you if you look, I, I think that's the consensus view. If you look at the the post-war boom, yeah, we were exporting stuff to Europe. And they were in shambles. That's a pretty nice place to be. Yeah. And in general, up until today, you and I are in a privileged state to be Americans. We are likely to make more money in anything we do because we're Americans. We have things like minimum wage laws and labor protections, which other countries lack. You could say that is a cause or, you know, it is maybe something that kind of goes with just an overall greater productivity we have in the U.S. But in any case, yeah, you take us both, you put us in Mexico, we are we lose a lot of the privilege. And I think uh, a lot of rural Trump-voting America are realizing that this privilege is going away. They are put more of an equal standing with international workers, and they are saying this isn't fair. Well, and, and so are you trying to say that that's incorrect? It, it does seem unfair, right? To, to have to compete with, well, if, say, a, a factory worker in Mexico, where well, if, cost if, of living or is much lower, and you know the, the general, you know, they, they don't have the same protections, say, at the workplace, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you could call me, you could call me idealistic. I would say, what's unfair is the fact that the worker in Mexico can't just move to Iowa. I think that's unfair. I'd say. Until everyone in the world can just move wherever, I think gaining an advantage because luck in where you're born is unfair. But I think that's uh, going up a few rungs higher as far as uh, solutions to all this. But yeah, I am, I am on moral grounds completely for open borders. Uh, that's that's a big thing this election also rejected is this idea that every country has a right to, to negotiate its borders. I tend to find that a very troubling conclusion, but I don't tend to think that the uh, the Trump voting bloc really had a consistent morality on this. I, I tend to agree with, you know, a Rawlsian idea of any place you're born, you deserve equal opportunity, no matter where it is. They don't care. They don't care about that. From Yeah, from a moral point of view, yeah, I think it makes sense to, you know, invoke that veil of ignorance uh, idea. But, I you know, most people aren't moral philosophers. Most people are just trying to you know, have a job and uh, have a house uh, and and live. So, but here's a thought experiment. Here's a thought experiment. Imagine that there were only Americans. The rest of the world didn't really exist. It's just a curtain and you pass goods and you get goods. And that's just what happens. Uh, and let's imagine Mexican workers, they're just, they're just robots. There's no real human beings there. They're just robots. Everyone in the world is robots. If the robots get better... This is kind of a good thing. We're getting more goods being sent from behind the curtain. This is good news. But if you're competing against the robots internationally, it's bad news for you. And yeah. really, whether they're people 
who, for unfair reasons, are getting squeezed, or if the robots, which are getting better and better, it's still the same situation that it sucks to be a worker if, if the competition's getting harder. Look, I'm not—I don't want to sound like I'm uh, only arguing against uh, globalization and automation. Uh, it, I think it's very obvious that uh, the more automation, the better. There, Chances are the thing—the kind of work that is being automated is the kind of work that isn't really that uh, satisfying to do in the first place. Uh, so in that sense, I think that's a good thing. Well, it's a good thing if we benefit. When I was young, I thought it was obvious. Of course we'll benefit. Of course we'll have personal robots. And I I remember talking to my my dad about this when I was 12, 13, and he just said, oh, there's going to be like one guy who owns all the robots, and everyone else is going to be screwed. Right. And That's a a concern. And I think it's a pretty valid concern. I think we need to figure out where we're going to be when that happens. And I tend to think it's not about owning the robots. I tend to think... Uh, because when robots are cheap to make and they can do everything, they'll build more robots. Everybody can have robots, but there's going to be limits of what everyone can have. There's always going to be scarcity. There's never going to be a completely post-scarcity world is what I tend to think because, for one thing, people want to be in a certain place. I think that's, I think that is never going to go away, uh, People will want to have a good location. I, th- yeah. Oh, when you say B, you mean physically B. I think physically B. Yeah. yeah. I, I think. I think. Yeah. I think location may be the last thing to really to go away. I think until we're all plugged into the matrix, it's going to have a value to have, be in a city among people and have fun with with folks you enjoy. And I think as long as we have the same way we build our cities we have today, there's not going to be enough room in the cities people want to live in. See, that, I, I can I can imagine a bunch of listeners saying that on its face seems ridiculous because I know so-and-so who lives out in the country and absolutely loves and wouldn't trade it for the world and, uh, in fact, would be very, very upset uh, if they had to live in, uh, say, Seattle or San Francisco. There is there is not much difficulty in finding a place. If you want to go it alone and live a ranch-style living by yourself on your own land, build your own septic tank, you know, <laughs> make all your own food, that's, that's easy. There's actually a lot of land out there. That really should be one of the easiest things to do is find some land just for you to do it completely alone. Not many people really want to run their own septic tank. A lot of people like b- being on a public utility grid. Well, maybe maybe not completely off the grid, but, you know, I, I, I can imagine people uh, coming, uh, coming back and saying, look, there are plenty of merits. Uh, there are plenty of positive things that go with living in a small town. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I think people may be happiest in a small town, but I think you look at prices indicating demand, small town living, you know, you look at isolated kind of small towns, you look at rural living, those prices are pretty much the same as they've been, if not dropping. Cities, the five or six biggest cities in America, have been booming consistently over the last couple of decades, and it seems like it's only getting more and more severe. And I think that just indicates 
there are a lot more people who want to live in these five or six cities than there is room for them. And I, 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 I would say there's certainly different strokes for different folks, but I think a lot, there's a lot of demand for city living. Yes, I think that's true. That's obvious. Uh, and everyone's one thing, trying to move to the cities. The question is, how well are they doing? How well, well is the average city dweller doing? Pretty bad. In, Why is if, that? If I you, mean, there's so much demand. Uh, you know, well, there's so many people. There's a certain magic, one might say, yep. uh, that exists in cities. Uh, so what's going wrong? Well, I guess you look at the Bay Area. There's yep. a couple different people living in the Bay Area, different classes of folks. There are people who have a right to stay here. These are, you know, the the first folks people may look uh, to point a finger at, rent-controlled tenants, the the classic scapegoat. Rent-controlled tenants, they can stay here as long as they want. They're rent-controlled. Uh, and I think you can say that's inefficient. That's, that's true in a technical sense. We have a bigger problem in my mind. We have rent-controlled uh, homeowners. Prop 13 has led for people to be able to stay in the Bay Area, whether or not they make room for more people. And this is only becoming a bigger and bigger class of folks who basically have the guarantee and at the, uh, you know, and who's everyone else? Everyone else are folks who are trying to make it in, and they're paying an awful lot. And that's really because we have so much land, and this is the way we share it. Some people are subsidized, and some people pay out the nose. What would an economist say should happen? Like an economist should say that, oh, if there's too much demand, we'll create more units and we'll have enough for everybody. We don't see that in the Bay Area. Instead, we see essentially a very small amount of growth, much less than comparable cities like Seattle. And we see uh, we see rents uh, just increase and increase as a result. I, I'd say that's the main thing. We We don't really keep supply to match demand, and the question is why. That's right. So your economics 101 class would say, look, there's a high demand for uh, housing, so what you'll see is a growth in, you know, new housing starts and uh, new apartment complexes. You know, you'll get more of that thing that people want, uh, and the price will come down until it reaches some equilibrium. I mean, let's say you have a nice ranch house that is selling for $3 million. Instead of it selling for $3 million, you could buy it, subdivide it, Make into four different, you know, uh, duplexes, and sell those. And really, if you're able to do that, you can make a lot of money. This is how our, this is how our classic big cities used to come to be. A place like New York would be, you know, a medium-sized city, and then a large city, and then a, a metropolis, because people would take low density and make it high density. We don't do that anymore, and a big reason is we can't do that anymore, and that has to do with with the fact that zoning is a phenomenon that started about 100 years ago and has become the major way that we keep our cities unaffordable. Is that something that's an un- unintended consequence, or is that really what zoning is all about? Some people would say zoning is about keeping the pores <laughs> out of your neighborhood. It does a pretty good job. Right. Okay. So explain to me, there seems to be a a slight disconnect here because you're saying, look, on the one hand, uh, economics says that it makes sense, which say it makes sense for all parties to take that ranch house that's worth three million bucks and convert it into, you know, a a small apartment complex and 
collect rent. Yeah. Uh, so and that is good for the people who will be renters. It is good for the person who owns that house to begin with. Uh, so would you say it's it's beneficial to both sides? Um, but we're not seeing that. So why are we not seeing that? How, why is basic well, economics broken down here? Well, if you look at, yeah, I guess if you, you look, can't just be zoning, right? Because, you, okay, what is zoning? Zoning is just, it's some well, zone, little ordinance that we created at some point. But if there were such an obvious economic benefit to everyone involved, y- you could imagine the politics changing pretty quickly. Well, economics 101 is not enough. Economics 101 is is something that... Well, I'm, I'm playing the dummy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Economics 101 is, it takes you so far, it gives you a good first approximation. Uh, there are spillover effects, externalities, and if you have people living in a city and you build more and more, uh, there there are externalities that exist in any plot when you build upon it. They draw upon city utilities. Uh, they could create bad outcomes for people in their neighborhood. Let's say you create a rendering plant in the neighborhood in the middle of a suburban uh, block, folks in the neighborhood would hate that. And they would say, hey, we don't like this rendering plant. What's a rendering plant? That's where you, I believe it's where you take like pig fat and turn it into... Oh, 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 oh rendering fat. Yeah. I, rend- see, I, see. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. I believe so. I just know it smells something awful. Uh, yeah, so people would say because we have a need to uh, police these externalities, we need to address this in some way. If they're going to have more of a draw on our utilities and our schools, we're going to tax them with uh, with impact fees. Uh, that's kind of a cousin of zoning laws these days is heavy impact fees for development. And to make sure people don't put the wrong kind of stuff in the right place, you need to have zoning laws to protect people from nuisances. A person, uh, and I, there's a lot of, of, of good notes on this. I really love the William Fischel book, The Economics of Zoning Laws, would say before zoning laws, it wasn't like there people couldn't make rendering plants in the, in the suburban neighborhood. There were nuisance laws. There has always been nuisance laws. And if you are ruining the neighborhood with your smell, you could sue them and stop them from doing that. This has always existed. A skeptic would say the only real externality that zoning laws are meant to protect was keeping black people out of your neighborhood. And they've done a great job at that. If you live in a privileged white neighborhood and you want to make sure that you don't have duplexes that might have the wrong colored folks show up, zoning laws were fairly explicitly to make this happen, and they did gangbusters. They kept minorities out of uh, white neighborhoods. So, But from an economic point of view, doesn't that mean that that quote-unquote nuisance was worth enough? You know, keeping away that nuisance was worth enough to the landowners, the people who were already there. It was worth enough to them to forego the profits they could have made by converting their homes to apartments. I think basically they're saying that, yeah, we appreciate having our all-white neighborhood more than having uh, our landowners accrue more value. If you if you talk about people say, let's keep low density uh, low density housing in our neighborhood, it will increase our housing values. This is true, but also not true. If you turned if you turn Palo Alto into Manhattan, those housing values would go up tremendously. So you could say they're leaving a lot of cash on the table. And I think the major reason is they really put a value on having low-density living. Sorry, explain to me this, the, the housing values would go, go up tremendously if you, if, you turned, if you took all the single-family homes in Palo Alto right Which now. are like $3 apiece. 
and you turned each one of them into a, I don't know, like a five-story apartment building. Or even more and more. Or, okay, yeah. make it really New York-y. Yeah. Um, why would that, if there's no more homes, you can't say that the value of those homes has gone up. That Well, the value of a unit would go down because there's more supply. But if you look at, like, Manhattan, what is a plot of Manhattan real estate worth? The land versus real estate in Palo Alto? It is worth more than $3 million for a considerable amount of... So, so you're saying that the person who owns the land would would make off like a bandit? It, yeah, I, I think long term, if everyone did that, they really could increase their, their, their uh, land values. But there's a lot of reasons why that doesn't make sense based upon... Uh, one, the landscape of California, uh, land use, and just in general, I think it's people's lots of versions. They would rather leave money on the table in order to keep what is the safest outcome to them. People tend to do this. And the safe outcome to them is, sure, I'm leaving money on the table, but I can have low-density living and no minorities and no poor people. This is great. Let's just do that. And that tends to be what zoning laws tend to do. They tend to be conservative and they leave money on the table. But it's easy to understand why people, when they come together and vote for a city council, would tend to do that. I like, I, I sort of like this description of it because it, 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 it is sort of lending itself to being able to price someone's racism. Yeah. And you can, you can actually put a dollar amount on how racist someone is. Well, the Coase theorem is something saying that, oh, there's always going to be, you know, the right kind of equilibrium because... If there are folks who are who are minorities and want to get in, they'll pay them off to say, I know you're, you know, X dollars racist. Here's X dollars. Let me in. <laughs> and there are a couple flaws with the idea that Coast is always going to be there. One case is if it's, oh, you want to keep poor people out. Why don't they just buy you out? Well, they don't have money. <laughs> the, the poor right, people yeah. aren't going to buy you out because they don't have money, which is why they tend to get screwed over repeatedly. In well, any could, could, like could some kind of public... Could the state at that point come in and say, "Look, we realize you're this much, you're this many dollars racist. Just here, here's some money. Just go away, so that this area can no longer be racist." Well, that's. I mean, you see in California right now, you tend to see a lot of things like that. You see affordable housing initiatives done by Sacramento. They know that having localized control tends to have a lot of perverse consequences. So you tend to wrangle them all together at the state level. It it kind of works to a first approximation. So, mm. and that's we're seeing a lot of stuff in California. Or I state mean, house. okay, to, to be to be generous, about it, you say, okay, look, maybe it's not racist. Maybe just people people just really like having houses. You know, people uh, in the seventies or whenever they built these houses, uh, these single family homes in Palo Alto, it, it wasn't a big deal back then. It wasn't a huge town. Uh, not everyone in the world was trying to move here, and you know they just wanted to have a house. And now they have the house, and now you're saying, oh, you you evil. Homeowner, look! Look how you're ruining everyone's, uh, everyone else's life here. Um, well, so it's the idea that if you live in a neighborhood, you have a right to control what your neighbors do because their development affects you, and it's true to a first extent. Yes, if your neighbor, if your neighbor turns their ranch home into an apartment building, it has an effect on you. It's to increase traffic. It's going to increase uh, the burden on the schools, and if enough do it. There, it will affect your quality of life. But I think that's a short-sighted view, which doesn't really come into play. This value that's disappearing, this value of low-density living, where does it come from? And if you are benefiting from it, if you have a $3 million household because this neighborhood is so quaint, 
why did you end up with that $3 million to, to boss people around? That's, that's a question because you have an ability in Palo Alto to buy a house, sit on it, sell for $3 million down the road. And the question is, where did that $3 million come from? Okay. Okay. I mean, that's okay. So the, so the direct the, answer to that question is yes. The, the three million, quote unquote, came from um, basically the fact that a lot of people want to live in that house. A lot of people want to live in that town. Uh, I mean, to put it in a, in a certain sense, zoning is a way of controlling externalities. It controls negative externalities development, but. The fact that people can can uh, profit off of land speculation is privatizing externalities of everyone else in the neighborhood. If you are able to sell your land for $3 million when you bought it for $100,000, you basically are taking value other people created, the externality, the spillover value they created, and it's going in your pockets. And it's kind of weird. We have the externalities going one direction but not the other. <laughs> they can benefit. So by... isn't, but okay, but is, isn't that... How is that any different from, say, buying a few shares of a startup company that everyone thinks is going to fail, but then you know suddenly blows up and turns into the next big thing? Can't you say that? Look, I you didn't really you didn't contribute really anything to that company. You didn't do any of the work. You just happened to buy a share at the right time, and now that share is worth like hundred hundred thousand dollars. So, uh, is isn't that essentially the same thing? You say, look, I I bought this plot of land. I didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. I just wanted to have a house here. Well, I mean, I think you could say that. Owning stock uh, in in equity in in a, in a firm like that, that isn't that different in some ways. But in some ways, it is different. If you buy stock in a company, it really doesn't affect anyone in a way. It doesn't crowd anyone out. But when you own a sprawling ranch house in the most valuable real estate out there, everyone else has to pay more. So you're saying land is not the same as uh, equity in a company. I would say in some in a they are fundamentally in, different things in a very general level. I mean, Henry George actually said, you know, stocks and equity and bonds are not capital. He said they were actually closer to being land. They actually because if they become something that does crowd people out, if you own stock in a monopoly, that is kind of similar to owning valuable real estate that crowds people out. If you own uh, shares in the in Standard Oil and they have a a right to be the only oil company. I mean, that's not really true, but it you are getting a share of this unfair benefit. So, I mean, that's that's just going on a technical sense. But yeah, in general, usually if you buy stock in a company, it's just you investing in the company. If you and it's good, it's good when you invest in a company because it means we're going to have uh, investment, more jobs, more production. If you invest in land, it doesn't really do good things for anybody. When you plop down $3 million to buy that house in Palo Alto, who, where does that money go? It doesn't go towards funding the schools. It doesn't go towards you know, funding the streets. It doesn't go towards public transit. It goes towards one guy who you know, is probably going to go off and live in Florida, which is the answer is who pays for the schools. You're still going to pay for the schools. You're still going to pay for the roads, but uh, you basically have to do it twice. So I know there's some peculiarities with California law. So I, I would think that if there were a town where each house cost three million bucks, the um, <clears throat> excuse me, the uh, the taxes would be pretty high. So you'd you'd think the schools would be pretty nice and the roads would be pretty, you know, free from potholes 
yeah, et cetera. Uh, is this not the case? What do you? Well, yeah. So folks have folks have said over over time that if you're looking for the efficient way to to fund a city, you should tax the land. If you tax the land on places worth three million, you will have enough to pay for the schools and the roads and so on. Uh, this is harder to do if it's like a frontier town, but the more and more developed it gets, it becomes a really pretty obvious way. If you want to fund a subway, you you tax the land around the subways, and that pays for the subways. You doesn't really make sense to tax people who work in the city where the subways are when you look at the fact that when you build a subway, land values go up. If you just take that... Uh, take that back like value capture this tends to give you subways for basically free as opposed to one you build a subway people get more valuable land and then you tax to make the subways also well it's it's not free right i mean it comes from the taxes of the landowners well yeah but the idea is instead of a an explicit tax that comes out of things not directly affected to it it comes out of what the subway increases, which is which is the nearby land. When the subway makes things better, it goes back into the subway. That's that's at least, in theory, it should make sense. Uh, but yeah, in California, we don't get that. We have Prop 13, and when you build a subway near some place, uh, the values nearby might skyrocket. It's great to live near transit, but their property tax doesn't change at all. So explain to me what Prop 13 is and does. Prop 13, baby. Prop 13 is the 1978 uh, initiative uh, led by Howard Jarvis, which capped, one, the rates of property tax per year, and two, uh, the increase of, of property tax every year. I, I, mean, I imagine you've heard it thrown around. I've heard it, and I know people are mad about it, but, you know. Well, some people are mad about it. Some people love it. <laughs> if you are a person who is kind of in a prestiged place not to pay your taxes because of it, it's great. If you are a person under 40, chances are it hurts you more than it helps you. So make the argument from the point of view of someone who wants it and likes it. So, okay, the original argument is back in the 70s, local city councils strapped for cash uh, would find the easiest way to increase it. How would they increase it? They would take local property taxes and increase it a bit. Mm. And that, it, for a first approximation, tended to go up and up. We had inflation at the same time, the stagflation of the 70s, and people just felt, hey, you know, I'm not being able to keep up with this, and this seems unfair that they're just squeezing me more and more. I need stability. So to get stability, they made an initiative, which, uh, <laughs> and one more thing, they felt assessments weren't done uh, in a fair and uh, regular way. They were done arbitrarily uh, every so often, so they didn't really keep up with inflation. Some people would have uh, a five-year-old assessment, and some people would have assessments that were done last year. And when inflation happens, that makes a big difference. So instead of that, they uh, basically said, oh, let's just make it go up 2% every year. This sounds, it, it would offer stability. It would keep people having the ability to know how much they'd pay. Isn't it great? It gives you everything a homeowner would want with no downsides. Well, what's not to love? Okay. So then what, where, how did this go wrong? Is it because the value of these properties increased more than 2%? Well, I, the, the, the reason it is wrong is because it makes the assumption that everybody is able to benefit from this no matter what. Uh, whereas it benefits a certain class of people. It benefits people who are able to get a home 
and benefit from having the original low value of the property. But in time, as you and I may have noticed, if you are under 40 years old and make less than a million dollars a year, you cannot buy a home in, in around Palo Alto. It is It has ceased to be a possibility for anyone but a, a real tycoon. And if you can't get that benefit, it tends to go disproportionately to a class of people, the people who got there earlier. So in a sense, you could, and I would call it a generational transfer of wealth from the, you know, from the young to the old, which tends to be unfair. There's an efficiency problem too. When you cease to get the uh, price signal to say, hey, your land is valuable, build upon it, uh, you tend to get people saying, hey, let's never, let's never make things denser. So, so what are you saying? You're saying, oh, look, here's grandma and grandpa. They live in their house in Palo Alto that they bought in, like, the 60s. Yeah. Uh, but they are actually quite evil. They aren't evil, but there's a system out there which uh, which tends to make people suffer. And it tends to— You, you know, just said they were benefiting from an intergenerational uh, transfer of wealth. Yeah. From the uh, young to the old. They're stealing young people's money is what you're saying. I mean, and you, they're probably saying, "No, we're just grandma and grandpa. We're just, you know, we're just hanging out here." Well, there's a law, there's a, a general law out there, a moral law, saying the worst thing you can do in the world is force Granny to move out of her home. And I would say, yeah, all things equal, it's bad to force Granny to move from her home. But let's imagine that in time you get nothing but old grannies who stay in their homes, and everyone else is just just hard up to find a place to live. It seems that, huh, maybe if we did have a few grannies voluntarily agree to move to more uh, modest condos, we'd have room for everybody. But instead, we have rationed our housing wealth disproportionately towards a, a certain class of people. And that, that that's great if you're that class of people. People in Palo Alto love the fact that they get low-density living and cheap uh, payments uh, with no downsides. If you are a person who doesn't own a house in 1978, it tends to be worse and worse. If you're a person paying several thousand dollars every month in rent, it tends to seem really uh, <laughs> a bit of a, of a ripoff. Okay, okay. I have a question. Fire. I have a question. So uh, what? You, you are a Georgist. I mean, it makes it sound like I have a disease or something. But and, I mean, the first step is to admit it. So, right. I mean, I tend to think on a spectrum of one side you have libertarians, one side you have Marxists. I tend to think uh, Henry George's things make a lot of sense. Okay, okay. So you're George's. And the big thing about George's is this land value tax. Right? They say, look, we got to tax these these things that are like natural resources. It's not really fair for any people, any one person to own them because... You know, you might own the land. You might say you own the land, but what does that really mean? It probably just means that your great-great-grandfather owned it. Well, so the fundamental things of Georgism is that there should be a tax on natural natural resources and natural opportunity. Uh, basically, there should be no undue privilege. You should tax all undue privilege. This includes monopolies and all sorts of things. And this could be the only tax. Uh, I think you are not necessarily—most Georgists can be pragmatic about this, but— it's a lot better to tax uh, people who came off being land barons than people than taxing middle class people on their incomes. So, 
today's big problem, right, is yeah. income inequality. And some, I mean, Piketty would say it's not income inequality, it's wealth inequality. Okay, okay, wealth inequality. Um, sure, but I mean, something that Piketty points out is that, look, uh, it's you're never going to be able to get the rest of us, right? The 99 are never going to be able to even catch up to the one because what the 1% have, right, the... They they make their money from money, right? The money is invested and the, there's capital gains, and that's how they make much of their income. Uh, whereas the rest of us are dependent on wages and uh, natural growth in the economy, etc. The problem is the economy is growing very slowly, whereas capital gains tend to continue growing at yeah, it's a pace. It's a lot better. It's a lot better for a person to get their money from passive income than active working. Right. So. Uh, how does that fall in with the whole idea of land value tax? Because here's what I'm thinking. You could live in a tiny uh, apartment somewhere, but you could still end up... This problem of uh, income inequality would still be there. Uh, It it doesn't seem to do much... Because if you're going to tax the land, right? Yeah. But let's say you don't own that much land. Let's just say you're just, you know, some rich guy. You own, like, a little house somewhere, but the majority of your income comes from capital gains. So here's a thought experiment. Let's say a guy's... Like a, Warren Buffett, right? Sure. Like he, what, he lives in like a tiny little house sure. in the middle of nowhere. Yes. But okay, so here's the thought experiment. You can throw Warren Buffett in to satisfy. Let's imagine a person has uh, the ability to make billions of dollars, and let's say they aren't a land baron. How do they make their billions of dollars? Well, in Warren Buffett's case, he kind of got lucky, right? Well, he invested in companies, and the companies had a high return. More often than not, the companies he invested in were monopolies. Uh, Warren Buffett, in a lot of cases, invested in companies that had uh, more, you know, a fairly absolute market share and had a fairly good return as a result of that. So if, if he owns these companies that are monopolies and he gets billions as a result— why did people trade with him to put billions in his pockets? A monopoly to me doesn't sound like in itself a natural like claim claim to a natural resource. It, it doesn't. A, a Georges would disagree. A Georges would say a monopoly is uh, an, an undue position to make profits because you're the only game in town. If you, for whatever reason, let's say that you have a supermarket that sells out everyone else, or let's say you have a company that makes taxis like Uber, and you undersell everything for years and years, you're the only game in town, and then suddenly you have the ability to charge whatever price you want, because no one else is in business anymore. That's a, that's a privilege. You're in a privileged position, which is a position to charge whatever you want. You're a price taker because you have a monopoly. And uh, George would say, that's an, a privilege you should not have. That should be broken Wait, up. why should you not have that privilege? What if, you know, what if I make chocolate chip cookies and they're better than everyone else's chocolate chip cookies? It's not my fault that everyone else, you know, just isn't very good at making chocolate chip cookies. Do you do you really? I mean, I guess some people would believe that Coca-Cola has a valuable brand because it's really the best soda in the world. I tend I tend to disagree. I think that they have the they maintain brand identity and have a, a, a are part of an oligopoly of sodas. And it really is not a, a reflection on the quality of the soda. So how does? Okay, I, I get what you're saying. How how is 
how does George propose we uh, find the value of a brand or well, that's uh, that's something he didn't really comment on much, but because he, that seems that seems hard, right? That well, seems he, hard, and uh, that seems like you're going to end up with a lot of political fights. I mean, he talked about identifying monopolies, breaking them up. Okay, and, how, and yeah. This, so, how do you identify monopolies? How, how would you identify monopolies? I mean, let's look at the 20th century. Trust busting. AT and T. AT and T had a monopoly of all of the uh, of of basically the telephone uh, traffic in the country, and the federal the feds broke them up tournament baby bells and we had something like competition now we have at&t versus verizon verizon used to be at&t before they broke it up imagine if these companies didn't split off we would have perhaps a monopoly in cell phones i think that just breaking up monopolies has had a pretty good track record in in having results this used to be part of our toolkit a hundred years ago this nation loved breaking up monopolies we don't really do it anymore and why don't we? Because a lot of uh, a lot of different schools of economics have said it's not a big deal. I mean, Milton Friedman in the Chicago School tended to say monopolies not a big deal, uh, and a lot of people are coming around to say this is maybe this has been a bad thing. Milton Friedman said monopolies are not a big deal. I, I, isn't it the the existence of monopolies? means that basically there's no competition, which means it's bad for the consumer, right? I mean, the- Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, a lot of free market folks, or quote-unquote free market folks, don't really tend to be for free markets, they're for laissez-faire. And that mm. I think that's been one of the major failings of the mainstream discussion we have in the country, is that we, we say, oh, the free market guys are all these freaks who want to have all this, you know, moguls make billions and billions— because, yeah, they say free market, they don't mean it. But is there really a place for a truly free competitive market? I I think it's not crazy to think there could be, but no one's really fighting for it. I, mean, I guess that's, that's the conclusion I reach. And I think if we just kind of go back to the point saying, hey, let's all agree monopolies are bad, let's break them up, uh, that'd be pretty good. So what what did George say about identifying monopolies? How would you do that? Well, I think one of the biggest things he said, natural monopolies, like your local sewers, your local rail lines in a, in, a, in a city, those are natural monopolies. Because if you run a you know, if you run a sewer line, you're not going to make a lot of money by laying a sewer line next to it and trying to undercut it because that's a huge huge commitment. And basically, yeah, you'll you'll never catch up. So he says when there's natural monopolies like that, you identify them and you you have the municipal government run it. And I think that's actually a good thing. He says, is this hard? Is it hard for a government to administer a business? Yeah, it's hard. But I th- he says it's necessary. Wait, so, so these things become nationalized? They become... <laughs> I, I, I tend to think municipal. Municipalized. But, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I tend to think... I mean, Hong Kong is pretty close to George's ideal. They have a municipal... They have a municipal uh, subway that's amazing. They have municipal uh, uh, public goods. They have a you know uh, uh, a public health service, you know public schools, etc. All offered by the municipality, and they own the land. And this tends to be uh, a Georgist would tend to think this makes sense. Uh, a city should own its land. They own the land. The government owns the land. People, the citizens do not own the land. They lease it from the government. 
citizens lease the land from the government, and then because of that, they have to pay. Yeah, you listen to episode one of this Henry George program. We talked about Hong Kong, Singapore, and the other Asian tigers and their their use of, of land. Ah, oh. it's an it, check it out. I'll have to check that out uh, after the after the program. Yes. Um. <clears throat> okay. Okay. So I mean, I'll, I'll compare this to the idea. That hey, let's 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 make uh, let's save some money. Let's privatize our prisons. Let's privatize our sewer lines. Let's privatize. I'll say this: competition and 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 privatization may make sense in a lot of ways, but in the last thirty years in our country, forty you know, whatever years, uh, we have privatized the wrong things. <laughs> Privatizing our prisons is never going to be a very good way to save money because one. Uh, there isn't a great competition in prisons because B prisoners aren't really the market players in this thing. It's, it's not a very, it, it it doesn't lend itself to being a market. And if you say, Hey, let's privatize our sewer lines. Yeah. You're going to shop around for that. That's great. So a lot of the biggest profits to companies are when you have a natural monopoly and private hands, it falls into it. There really is no reason instead of some schmuck company making billions running utilities in major American cities, why that money couldn't fund the city. That's value capture 101. And I think it just, it's kind of common sense, but we have been, I think the fact that people like Milton Freeman said in, in Chile, hey, let's perform an economic miracle and have private markets. A lot of it worked. And I think it tended people to say, it's all the same. If you privatize supermarkets, you should privatize your prisons. And I'd say you're looking at two different classes of things. And I that's the major thing of George's would object to in the modern discourse. So, again, discourse. Fund, fundamentally, the difference between a supermarket and a prison is? The difference between a supermarket and a prison is there – I mean, people would say the difference is there is a finite supply is one big thing. There really isn't – you can't just go out and make new prisoners and a new prison and all this. There is, whereas supermarkets, a person could start off and get in competition. It's if you privatize the prisons, it there it, it just at the fundamental level, it doesn't lend itself to a market. Or if it does, it leads to some very sick incentives where you're trying to make more prisoners. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's yeah, and that's 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 a really bad case where yeah. uh, who is really the customer in that case? Yeah, I mean. Uh, uh, George just tends to say, hey, let's use markets where they work. Let's avoid markets where they fail. And for better or for worse, that's pretty good. I, I'd say you tend to have a new left that says, let's avoid markets all the time. I think that's scary. And you have you know, folks on the right that says, let's you know, privatize everything. And I think that's stupid. Right. One of the problems with avoiding markets all the time is that you no longer have the price mechanism tell you yeah, I mean, to I'm, receive signals. Uh, I mean, you go to the supermarket, the supermarket works. It gives you a bounty of goods. And why does it work? It Because the, the price system. It's, 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 it's neat. And when you have a lot of competition, it works. A lot of times you don't. And I think the key isn't let's get, a, get rid of markets. The key is make sure they are competitive. And we don't really tend to see that anymore. You could say it is about the return to any uh, holding of an investment. If the the fundamental Georgist idea is there's two kinds of value. There is value from production and there's value from obligation. And I think this is a really fundamentally cool idea. 
I don't hear uh, value from production versus value from obligation. Yeah. So the idea is, if I go out and I plant an apple tree and I have apples and I sell you apples, that's I created value. I created things people like apples, mm-hmm. and you buy it because you like apples. Great. We this is this is good. I get value, but I more or less earn it because I worked for it. I put my labor into farming a tree. Value from obligation. Let's say I take you and I put you in jail and I charge you uh, to let you out of jail. I can make a lot of money that way. It's not a good way to make money because what did I do? I rent-seeked. That's rent-seeking behavior. I found a way to make you pay me money, and I really generated no actual value. And uh, Georges would say that when you speculate in land, when you hold on to land in a valuable place, that is only value from obligation. There's really no actual value from production in holding on to land because you don't produce anything. The land was there before you got there. It's going to be there after you get there. So there's really no downside to taxing all the money you make on holding on to this land. Because what we want to do with our taxes is reward production and disincentivize rent sinking. So the best kind of taxes are the ones that go on people who are generating no value. And the worst kind of taxes are put on people who are actually doing things. You talk about a VAT, the value-added tax in Europe and so on, that's a pretty bad tax because you get, you, you get taxed on the value you add. That's a bad thing. You are actually mm-hmm. taxing people doing things that are good. So, I mean, you need taxes, but you might as well put it on the best places. That's what a Georges would say. Uh, yeah, in competition, generally, is competition over producing things. You don't compete over who can rent seek the worst. That's that's the general idea. So you see, you see where this would end up becoming a hard to implement, right? Because you actually have to say what is good and bad behavior. Yes, and, you have to say that, which means getting on a stump somewhere during some political campaign and basically saying, "Look, gra- gra- grandma and grandpa aren't really." Uh, they're not being productive. Yeah. I mean, what the, here, here is the thing. A Georgist would say if a person wants to live in a community and stay in the community and have stability, this is all well and good. But why, in the end, should they make millions of dollars selling their home? If they, they should, at the very least, give up that right, which means that housing would tend to be more affordable down the line. Also, one other thing that seems unfair about this is that, you know, you're suddenly, you're going to jack up. Property taxes, essentially. That's what you're saying. Um, uh, well, I mean, the thing is, in a place like the Bay Area now, property taxes are two things. They're the land, and they are the things you put on the land. If you're in Palo Alto, the $3 million in your house is mostly in the land, the actual yeah, thing on yeah, top yeah, of yeah. it. So when land gets more and more expensive, to a first approximation, it is a land value tax and the property tax are pretty much the same thing. But if you're talking about a place like downtown, especially downtown in an area where the land isn't worth that much, yeah, it's very different things. And a Georgia would say, hey, it's a good thing if someone builds a nice building. Don't tax the building. Just tax the land. Oh, okay. I see. I see. So is although it still seems a little bit unfair because it, let's, let's say I am one of these Silicon Valley tycoons, as you uh, so nicely put it earlier. Um and I have this very nice house in Palo Alto. Speaking of the Zuck? Look, let's say I, I don't know who I'm speaking of. Yeah. But 
Uh, I'd say it's an incredibly charismatic future presidential candidate. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so I have this nice house in Palo Alto. And, you know, you are able to scrap Prop 13 and suddenly property uh, taxes uh, pay, uh, that are, you know, uh, I guess levied against uh, landowners in Palo Alto skyrocket. A lot of grandmas and grandpas have to leave their homes. The one guy who doesn't have to leave his home is uh, said tycoon, right? Because he has the money. Well, she, perhaps she. Oh, thank you. That's sorry. So, I feel I feel so. Uh, this is so much more progressive all of a sudden. Uh, so, are you saying that there's a world where there's only room for tycoons? Because I I tend. Well, let's just yeah. What's your answer to that? You imagine you get rid of this, you have a future where only tycoons can live here. Well, that's what it's like now, right? Well, I'd say the difference is my dream of any city in demand, no matter what shape or size, there is affordable housing for everybody. And in a world where you have ideal competition, you should see enough housing units get built for everybody. This would be good for everybody because there's affordable housing. How do you make people be able to live in a city? Is it through rent control, public housing, so on and so forth? I'd say like any other good, you make it by making every bit of the good affordable. You can't bootstrap yourself. Sorry, hold on. Let, let me just rephrase what you just said. So you sure. said, um, okay, you said, I'm trying, again, from a dummy's point of view, what I just yep. heard was that every single town or city should have affordable housing in it. The So we, we have gotten to the place in the Bay Area, for instance, where market rate housing is an ugly term, which means luxury housing. This is not because... Sorry, what? Yeah, so when you say, like, oh, you're just going to build more market-rate housing, that's considered to be a terrible thing as a before to... Oh, uh, yeah, 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 it is. Yes, yes, sorry, yeah. Compare that to affordable housing, because market-rate housing is luxury housing. Yes. This is kind of weird, because market-rate housing is the default. That's what gets sold to anybody. And when... No, that's what gets sold to the highest bidder. Right, which in general in a market tends to be the default. If I go out and I buy apples at the grocery store, it gets sold to the highest bidder, but it's cheap. And I'd say saying the highest bidder makes it sound like it's high. It's not necessarily so. If you sell housing the highest bidder, but it's low, great. That's I'd say the best way to have affordable housing is to make market rate housing affordable, and not make market rate housing a luxury, which is what we've turned it into. But there is a demand for the luxury, right? There's a demand for, like, people want to live in these, you know, ultra-fancy apartments in, in downtown San Francisco. Sure. Or may, maybe they don't. Maybe maybe a lot of those fancy buildings are just empty. Who knows? But I mean, there's a, there is, of course, always going to be demand for luxury. But a lot of people are paying out the nose not because they want luxury, but because they want a roof over their head. And they pay thousands of dollars a month for a place that isn't that luxurious because we are not building enough for these folks. Yeah, and this this is this is again again if if I had to I guess sum up my I I will, I will, ju- I will jump to... in for a second. How luxurious is your place now and how affordable is your place now? Okay, so my place is not very luxurious um and it's it's not very affordable. <laughs> so, but it's market rate. Yeah. So are you? It sounds like you're a luxury snob if you're paying this. Actually, yeah, it, yeah, it's called a luxury apartment, but it, it's not very luxury. Is that true? It's actually called a luxury apartment uh, because I have a uh, 
I have a small washer and dryer. Mm. So it's considered luxury. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but I also have silverfish. Oh, those are nice. Yeah. They're silver. Yeah. They're not, you it's... know, bronze fish. Um, anyway, but, but okay, so my my general objection to these these George's ideas, I guess, is not really an objection on the economics, but it more of an objection on the political sort of feasibility of it, because essentially, what your if this if if this were to ever happen, you would have to convince people with a lot of power and a lot of money to give up that power and money, which is something people with power and money don't like to do. Yeah, well, I say this not as people with power and money being others, you know, some kind of other foreign clan. But, I mean, I think I see that in myself. If I have any kind of power and money, I tend to not want to give it away. Yeah. Well, I think the first step is identifying who are the real opponents of of a paradigm like Georgism. It really is a fallacy to say it's your grandma who is going to have her house become unaffordable. Because, really, the most the most desirable land is not this suburban land in Palo Alto. It is downtown land in a place like San Francisco. And that's not owned by your grandma. In in our urban cores, our land is run by billionaires who make a ton of money by running uh, and owning urban real estate. This is a historically great way to do it. And if you're in California with Prop 13, it's just it's really just free money if you can afford to get in. So, I mean, if the idea is is a Georgist tax regressive, does it hurt the middle class? Of course not. Does the middle class own more land than the rich? No, no, no. I don't think I didn't say it's regressive. I just yeah. said it's going to be difficult to implement because because the billionaires... Essentially because it is it is progressive, and any progressive yeah. sort of scheme tends to have a lot of opposition I from get... people with privilege, people with power, people with money. So how, I mean, how effective was the framing of the 1% versus the 99% of things like Occupy in your mind? I think, I think it was effective in that it sort of woke people up a little to the reality but in terms of you know let me just look around like did it change anything no not really you know it it made us a little bit uncomfortable for about six months in 2011 or whenever that happened but now you know i'm still living in my you know expensive apartment with my luxury washer dryer so well here i guess here's the question what did what was there in one demand I'm not exactly sure it was very clear. I don't I don't know if they had a demand, but they were very clear about it was more about just like, hey, look. Look, this is this is this is happening. Folks, this is happening. Look. And that's a classic Marxist viewpoint is, hey, look at the system. The system is really screwy. Yes. And what? I think in that sense they they succeeded. And I guess step 2 is, hey, how do we fix it? And a Marxist and the Occupy movement had really failed to figure out how to fix it, which I tend to think has limited usefulness if you don't really have good ideas. You can look at a lot of, I think, fundamentally fair ideas, things like implementing things like Glass-Steagall uh, and, and general incremental banking reforms. You can look at more progressive taxes in other senses like income and corporate rates. But it they really didn't have any many radical concrete proposals. And 
I guess the Georgist dream is the land value tax is one single, clear, elegant, radical proposal. Could it ever fly? The the Georgist the Georgist uh, idea is um, attractive because one, it is a capitalist idea. Well, it 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 realizes that it's we would rather live in a place that has bountiful supermarkets than North Korea or Venezuela. You can say, "Hey, it's great if everything's fair, and communism does that." But yeah, it's not great to starve to death. It's not great to starve to death. I mean, that's a that's probably an, a philosophy most people get can, yeah. can get behind. Um, and the people today, the the American left today, more and more is apologizing for North Korea, is apologizing for Venezuela because they're saying, well, at least we're not capitalist, which is, in my mind, terrifying. Because we are, if we go in that direction, we're going towards things that do not work. Right, that, no, that doesn't, that doesn't seem great. I mean, this, this goes back to how we started this conversation. We were talking about globalization. We're talking about, yeah. uh, you know, displacement uh, in the labor markets and all that. And to me, it seems that what we really need again is more automation um well, in the sense in the sense that it gets it will get rid of a lot of just very onerous work which is i think a valuable thing for society for society in general uh i think globalization also on on balance is actually a good thing right i mean it well so it on i mean it's the same it's the same thing it's great to have cheap goods for everybody but how do you make sure people can afford the cheap goods Right. I mean, if if you if you have cheap goods all around you, but you are considered worthless in the marketplace of people, that's a bad place to be. And I worry that is one bad outcome of our future paths of humanity. Right. I mean, yeah. There's also the the sort of opposite of that, which is there's no point having a lot of money if there's nothing to buy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that's it's. <laughs> two bad outcomes. So yeah, I think we should wrap up here. Any any other uh, thoughts on on uh, I guess this introductory uh, debate on or called debate? I don't know what this is. I, I'm not sure what this is. What the hell is this? I don't know. It involved IPA at ten in the morning on a Tuesday. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So this is the Henry George program. Uh, thank you, Kadar, for being around. This is uh, this is KZSU Stanford.